Judges chapter 2, verses six, verse 6, and we'll read to chapter 3, uh, verse 6 of, of chapter 3. Turn with me now to the book of Judges. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel each went went each to his own inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of, inher- of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, in the north, north of the mountains of Gaash. And all that generation who were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order to test It is only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. 
These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to to their sons, and they served their gods. Let us pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, or we come before you now and ask that you would be the one to speak to us through your holy word. Lord, would you open our eyes to see wondrous things out of your law. Strengthen our hearts where they are weak. Comfort our hearts where they are broken. Confront our hearts where they are stubborn. Change our hearts where they are wayward. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight, by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Let me read that one more time. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. So says John Calvin in the very opening sections of his important influential book, The Institutes of Christian Religion. Calvin begins his Institutes of the Christian Religion saying that wisdom consists in two things, the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God. And this is what Calvin has to say about ourselves, that we think ourselves wonderful, great, smart, wise, just, upright, wise, and holy, until someone brings forth evidence to the contrary. So how will we know ourselves as we truly ought to know ourselves? But who among us wants to know ourselves this way? Who wants to know yourself as vile, as foolish, as impure? Who wants God to show that to us? Who wants to go before God and ask him to show in our hearts the ways where we are sick and impure, defiled, Is that even a loving thing to do? Is that how we show love to one another, is to point out their faults, to point out where they are wrong? Is this something that we do towards others? Is this something that God should even do towards us? What does our culture say about something like this? What is our culture's response and declaration about love? How does our culture answer the question, how do you know that someone loves you? Well, I think there's a right understanding. They affirm you. They build you up. They lift you up. They show and point out the good qualities in you. They point out what is lovely and good in you. 
But I believe that is where our culture ends. And in a way, they go even further than that. They affirm things that ought not to be affirmed in who we are. They could be summed up as solely concerned with affirming your goodness. We only want to point out your good. We often know this as the phrase self-esteem. We simply are here to encourage people, and we don't want to point out their wrongs. We want to point them in the right way of what is good. But is this loving? Maybe you've seen uh, posters in front of homes around in our city, and they begin this way, in this house we believe. And then they list several politically charged messages on them, some of them better than others. But there is one phrase in particular that stands out on that poster. In this house, we believe that love is love. Often that phrase is colored in the rainbow, implying that homosexuality is a normal thing. Is it loving to say that that is wrong? Is it loving to point out that Scripture declares that that is a sinful practice? Our culture proclaims itself to be one of love. Is it loving to do that? To point out where we are vile, unjust, foolish, and impure. They certainly affirm love in a lot of good ways. They point out that racism is evil, that oppressing people is evil, that abuse is evil. But with one hand they give and with the other hand they take away. We point out something is wrong, and we are now no longer loving. We are now issuing forth hate speech. It is not an act of love to point out wrong. It is actually an act of hate. And we feel this today. We must remain faithful to what our God says, despite what the culture around us worships, what it idolizes, what it prioritizes. There's an important question for us. Are we any better than them? They recoil when we as Christians point out the sins that we see Scripture outlining. But how do you respond when people point out your sins? Do you rejoice and give thanks that God is revealing to you your heart? Or are you, like the world, upset, angry, rejecting these things? thinking those words are harsh, that that is an act of unlove. What I would like to show us today, that what God is doing here is an act of love towards his people and showing them who they really are. The end of this passage is God working to show Israel who they really are because it is something they need to turn from. And run and flee to find life. So let's look at this passage. I'd like to see this in a couple ways. The faithful generation, then as you see in the title of your sermon, the unfaithful generation. And then lastly, we will look at our faithful God. Our text this morning begins with a problem. If you look over at chapter 1, you'll hear that Joshua has died. Chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Now we turn over to chapter 2, verse 6, and it says, 
when Joshua dismissed the people? Did Joshua just rise from the dead? What happened here? Why is the author doing this? Why is he giving us this flashback, going back in time to look at the life of Joshua? Well, you know what this is like. It's when you've heard a story told, but then somebody tells it a little bit differently. They add something, they change something in order to highlight something in that story that you may have missed. They might pick up where the previous story left off and continue it, adding something in there to clarify. And this is what the narrator is doing in the book of Judges. He is taking the very end of the book of Joshua and opening it up for us, explaining it for us. I want you to stay here in the book of Judges and listen. As I read the closing, the closing verses of the book of Joshua, it says this, So Joshua sent the people, of way, people away, every man to his inheritance. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance in timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had, and, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now, you might read what it says in the book of Joshua and then look over here in chapter 2 of Judges and say, it's verbatim what it says before. But there is one thing that is different in particular. In Joshua 24, at the very beginning, it says, So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. And then we learn that Joshua dies. But in Judges, it adds something. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. The narrator now adds for us that the people of God and Israel had a job to do. They were to take possession of the land. We saw this several weeks ago when we talked about harem warfare, where they were to go into the land. It was a holy land set apart by God in which nothing sinful could exist, and they were to destroy everything, the people, the trees, the land, everything in there. But as we saw in chapter 1, they failed to carry out this task. They, like us, have a hard time carrying out what God commands us to do. They are now to take possession of the land. It is open before them. God says, now go in, possess it. Do what I have called you to do. Will the people be faithful to the command of Joshua? Will they do what Joshua has commanded them? Well, we hear about the faithful generation, these people who saw the works of the Lord. They saw what God had done. They saw how God had led them for 40 years, wandering in the wilderness, feeding them day and night, manna and quail, miraculously guiding them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire day and night, leading them to the promised land. They saw these works. But it's not just a mere knowledge of these works that these people had. This is an intimate understanding and a knowledge that says, I know who has done this, and I want to know this. This is important to me. It's not something that is careless or just a fact of history. 
And because of that, they remained obedient to the Lord. They followed in his ways. They followed God's servant Joshua as God brought them into the land, and they heeded his commands. What we learn is that their success was first and foremost a spiritual reality. Their success in entering into the promised land was because they followed what God had commanded. They had trusted in his promises. And then Joshua dies. This great, charismatic leader, proclaiming God's word to the people, calling them to obedience, leading them, guiding them. What happens when a leader is taken from us? We forget. We become careless. And that's precisely what happens here in the book of Judges. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, certainly these people know the Lord. We will see throughout the book of Judges that they cry out to him. Certainly they are aware of what God has done. They are just one generation removed. This is not far from their minds. But do they truly know it? Is this something that is important to them, that they know it in such a way that they say, this is true for me, that God has rescued me, that he has saved me. They forget. They become careless. And so begins the refrain that we will see time and time again in the book of Judges. And the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Here in chapter 2, the author declares to us the downward spiral that begins in Israel. Time and time again, they do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And we will see this refrain show up several times throughout the book of Judges, marking important transitions in this book. But it shows the two sources of the evil that they did in the eyes of the Lord. It was syncretism. They accommodated to the surrounding world around them. They worshipped no longer the God of Israel alone, but they added to their worship of Yahweh the worship of all these other gods. They had forgotten the first commandment. And then not only that, did they fail to carry out harem warfare to kill all the inhabitants of the land that we learned about. Now we are actually seeing them take up these pagan beliefs. Instead of devoting them to death, they are now taking on their practices and thoughts. There is nothing that distinguishes them any longer as the people of God. They look just like the people around them. Then what does God say to them? He has a stinging rebuke for the people of God because they made themselves look just like the nations around them, adopting their false practices. And he says this, I will no longer drive out the inhabitants. Why is that important? Because that is the same word in Hebrew for take possession. It is now repeated against Israel. 
No longer would they take possession of the land that instead God is no longer going to give them possession of this land. The ones that Israel was to drive out in order to take possession, God is no no longer going to drive out through their hands. They will no longer possess this land in its fullness. And then we hear the judge's cycle repeated. God raises up a judge. The judge saves the people from their enemies. The people fail to obey. And then worst of all, they become even more wicked than before. This downward spiral that happens throughout this book. And we see clearly at the end, we see this clearly at the end of this section in chapter 3, verse 6. When it declares, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Instead of putting these people to death, they are now giving birth to their offspring. They were the ones who were commanded to bring these people to an end, and now they are perpetuating them, worshiping their gods, bearing their offspring. And God levels his judgment. I will no longer drive these people out from you because of what you have done. Why is God leaving these nations there? What is the purpose of doing this? And why is that important for you and I today? And one sense, it brings into question God's promise. God had promised to these Israelites that he would give them this land, that he would turn it over to them and Make it the holy land where they would dwell. God would be present with them. He would be their God and they will be his people. Is God faithful to his promise? Yes, he is. But God has a purpose in what he's doing. He wants to teach these people. And he wants all of us, you and I, to understand this principle, that the only way to inherit the promised land is through obedience. The only way that they ultimately would inherit this promised land was through obeying the commandments that God had given them. God left these people in the land that the people of Israel might learn war and to see if they would obey him. Could they actually carry out what God told them to do? Would Israel be faithful? Can these people on their own actually do this? Can they fulfill God's commands? Can you, like these people, do what it takes? And the answer at the very beginning of this book of Judges is a resounding, stinging no. The cycle continues. They become worse and worse and worse. That is why God left these people. That is why God left these nations to teach the Israelites, you are no better than them. You will become just like them. Unless God intervenes with his deliverers, you will be just like them. In the end, you will always give yourself over to the people of the nations around you. Because at the very core, you are just like them. We are all the same. And this is what God is doing. 
in loving his people. As he is showing them and showing us who we truly are. Showing the true nature of our hearts. That you, like the Israelites, are weak. You do not have the power in yourself to ultimately fulfill God's commands. In fact, on your own, you will do the opposite. That indeed, you are evil. The people of Israel could not do it. They couldn't. They failed. Even when God sent them judges, these deliverers, to help them, they still didn't listen. And this is ultimately a picture for you and I about how we enter the promised land, which is heaven. That we cannot enter heaven on our own. We can't do it. In fact, we can't have other people help us get to heaven. They can't cause us to inherit this. And the only way to get to heaven, to enter God's promised land, is to perfectly carry out God's law. And Israel, as God tests them, shows them over and over again, you cannot do this. God wants his people to know who they are. He wants you, he wants me, all of us to know that we need a deliverer. A once and for all deliverer. A once and all for all savior. We will not cry out for salvation until we know that we need saving. That we need to be saved from our evil, from our sin, from our wickedness, our vileness, as John Calvin said earlier. We need to see ourselves for who we truly are. And that is why God left these nations in the promised land. To show Israel who they truly were. We always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced, until we are tested and proven wrong by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. And that is what this section of Judges is meant to show us. It shows Israel, and if Israel could not do it, with everything that God had given them, We cannot do it either. We need to know that we need a Savior. Not just a judge, but a Savior. One who delivers us from our enemies and from ourselves. Now there is a psalm, Psalm 106, that reflects upon the life of Israel as they are doing what's happening in Judges. Psalm 106, verse 40, if you'd like to turn there and hear what this text says as it describes the people of Israel. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power, Many times he delivered, he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes, and they were brought low through their iniquity. 
I want you to hear what this psalm says next. Nevertheless, he, God, looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. And the psalmist cries out, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. Throughout the book of Judges, God over and over hears the distress, the cries of his people. He sees them suffering and he sends deliverers to them. And as many of us know, God has done this finally, fully and perfectly in Jesus Christ. That he has sent his final deliverer to perfectly conquer our greatest enemy, Satan, who seeks to rule over us, to turn us to false gods, to demons, to turn us away from the Lord. What we need is to remember God's covenant, his covenant of grace, that he gives the promised land to sinners, to people who don't deserve it. We're going to do this in just a moment, where God is going to remind us of his covenant in the Lord's Supper, that he gives heaven itself to sinners like us. But God has done this in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who has dispossessed his enemies from the heavenly places, as we learn in Ephesians chapter 2. And he is the one who has entered the promised land for us into heaven itself at the right hand of God the Father. And listen to what Peter says in his first epistle. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Through Jesus Christ, God gives the inheritance to us. And we have it by faith. By looking to Jesus Christ and trusting and believing that he is the one who has won heaven for us. We acknowledge we're just like Israel. We will go astray. But there is one who has won heaven through his obedience, through doing it perfectly. And that is Jesus Christ. So today, Christians, rejoice in the salvation that God has provided you in Jesus Christ. Rejoice in his great love for you. That God did this, as we read earlier, while you were still sinners. Christ died for you. And on top of that, let your life show thankfulness for this gift that God has given to you. Through loving God in return. Thanking him in love. God, I love you because you have given me 
heaven freely. I did not deserve it, but you have provided it freely for me. That is what we are to learn today from this section of Judges. That yes, God reveals the hard truth about ourselves. That we are sinners, vile and holy, unjust. But God saves vile, unholy, unjust people. And he does this freely. So rejoice in that today and rest in it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks to you. And we rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is not pleasant to see ourselves in our wickedness, to see ourselves truly for who we are. But Lord, I pray that you would continually show Jesus Christ to us. As Paul says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Lord, what an inestimable gift you have given to us, the love of God to sinners. Remind us always of this truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.